When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Saturday, the 1st of July, 1905, and Charles' cousin Spencer is about to give Sydney a new thrill. At the Lyceum Theatre, this dapper, bearded gentleman is screening a two-hour program of short film subjects for a sellout crowd. Movies include The Smugglers, which shows an exciting chase off the coast of Cornwall, along with comedies about mischievous maids and a family holiday, and documentary sequences showing a Spanish bullfight and the Tsar's ill-fated fleet in the Baltic during the Russo-Japanese War. Spencer's projection equipment is an electrically powered 3000 candle power arc light enhancing image sharpness beyond anything seen before and eliminating that annoying flicker found at other picture shows. And his wife Mary, who serves as projectionist, well, she's an attraction in her own right, promoted as the only lady operator in the world. Senora Spencer, as she's known, wears a velvet gown with jewellery adorning her bare arms, neck and hair, and she stands in a waist-high enclosure amid the audience, hand-cranking the movie machine for the entire program. Before the show, the Senora has carefully edited these films to rid them of anything boring or confusing, and during her projection, she'll crank faster or slower to accentuate moments of action, humour and pathos. That first night, the pictures shown by Spencer and the Senora are anything but silent. A full orchestra provides a live musical score 
and a team of technicians behind the screen creates convincing sound effects, firing blank cartridges in revolvers, clip-clopping coconut halves, rattling sheets of tin and smashing glass bottles. And from the side of the screen, Spencer, his voice reflecting his English upbringing and the recent decade he spent on the North American frontier, introduces each new subject as his wife spools and threads the film reel. As the picture plays, Spencer explains any scene that might otherwise be opaque to the audience and ensures the respectability of his venture by offering educational angles. It's perhaps no surprise that this showman, who has himself lived in a wild pocket of the Americas, is most enthusiastic when it comes to narrating his program's two most popular films, gunplay dramas The Great Train Robbery and Cowboys v Indians. Little can Spencer imagine that a quarter of a century on from this night, he'll be, just like the train robbers, a frontier fugitive, hounded by a posse of real-life cowboys and Indians. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, Spencer, from movie mogul to murderer. Australia is great at producing people who produce hugely successful movies. Look at just about any Hollywood blockbuster and you'll see our talent in front of and behind the cameras. Chris Hemsworth, Margot Robbie, Ben Mendelsohn, Kate Blanchett, Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman, along with dozens of other Australians, are critical and commercial superstars while James Wan, George Miller, Baz Luhrmann, Kate Shortland, Peter Weir, Jocelyn Morehouse, David Michaud and Gillian Armstrong, among many others, have carved out successful directorial careers. Then there's an army of writers, producers, cinematographers, composers, editors, visual effects artists, costume designers and other professionals all involved in creating films watched by countless millions of people every year. All of that said, the Australian film industry wages a never-ending struggle to fund locally made films and entice audiences away from well, those very same Hollywood movies that our expats are so good at making. But this battle isn't a new one, and more than 100 years ago, one of its most decisive defeats resulted in a body blow to our moving picture production, and resulted in the tragic downfall of the movie mogul who did more than anyone else to pioneer an Australian film industry. The man who'd later call himself Charles Cousins Spencer was actually born Spencer Cousins on the 12th of February 1874 in Hunston, West Sussex, England. His father, Cornelius, and mother, Ellen, were farmers. Their first son, Sidney, was born in January 1870, followed by Arthur in June 1872. Then along came their youngest boy, Spencer. 
Judging by their increasing land holdings, as recorded in English censuses, the family was prosperous, nearly quadrupling their acreage in the 1870s. And their boys went to the aristocratic English public school, Winchester College, during the same period that George Mallory and Arnold Toynbee studied in its hallowed halls. Though born into some privilege, by the time Spencer was 17, he was living away from the family home in Middlesex and apprenticed to a hosier. In 1893, New Horizons beckoned, with the cousin's family, minus eldest son Sydney, setting sail for Canada, arriving in Halifax, Nova Scotia on Spencer's 19th birthday. From there, they travelled across the country to British Columbia, establishing themselves at remote Camp McKinney, which had sprung up near the Caribou Gold Mine on the slopes of Mount Baldy, which towered some 7,500 feet over the densely forested hills. Camp McKinney was 30 miles from the nearest railway station, which in 1896 offered road agents the chance to rob one of the Caribou Mine's major shareholders of $10,000 worth of gold bullion, with this loot never recovered. As newly arrived settlers, Spencer and Arthur tried their luck mining and bought horses to breed. It was a hard frontier life with heavy snows in winter and pioneers regularly using their guns to protect themselves against bears, wolves and rattlesnakes. Joined by Sydney in 1897, the Cousins brothers established a general store at Camp McKinney and another one some 800 miles north at the mining town of Fairview. It was young Spencer who managed these businesses, which offered all manner of supplies to miners and settlers. Under his entrepreneurial direction, the Cousins Brothers' stores did well, with the Vancouver Daily World newspaper in March 1899 reporting that they were, quote, erecting a gigantic building at Camp McKinney, which will be used as a store and offices. The Cousins also made money from mining, with the Greenwood Miner newspaper six months later announcing they and a business partner had made a big gold strike. By the turn of the century, Camp McKinney was home to 250 people, and in addition to the Cousins Brothers' store, this population supported a butcher, a church, a school, and five saloons where miners could spend their hard-earned cash. Yet, the gold boom was short-lived. The Caribou Mine was exhausted by 1903 and the once bustling Camp McKinney soon became a ghost town. But before Camp McKinney was abandoned, Sydney and Arthur Cousins had already moved on to other businesses in other parts of British Columbia. And Spencer? Well, on the afternoon of the 25th of July, 1902, he boarded the steamer Moana in Vancouver, bound for a new life on the other side of the world in Australia. Also on the ship was a Vancouver hotel keeper named Robert Huntley, his wife Isabel and their 23-year-old daughter Mary. Originally from Scotland, this family had briefly lived in Spain before moving to Canada in 1895. 
Spencer had spent time in Vancouver on business around the turn of the century, and he may have known the Huntleys from these visits. But he also could have met them for the first time aboard the Moana. Whatever the case, it doesn't appear that Spencer and the Huntleys planned to establish a movie business in Australia. That's because Vancouver's The Province newspaper at the time reported that the Huntleys' ultimate destination was South Africa and this was where they intended to settle. Meanwhile, Spencer, a wealthy and well-organised businessman, didn't appear to have taken projection equipment with him on the voyage. The Moana arrived in Brisbane on the 16th of August 1902 and made its way south over the week that followed. By September, in Melbourne, Robert Huntley, partnering with a man named Richard Hardy, was exhibiting short films at Queen's Hall in Bourke Street. And Spencer? He was ready to get into the movie business too. With Huntley as his middleman, Spencer arranged for Hardy to import projection equipment for him from San Francisco at a cost of £75. Yet when the gear arrived a month later, Hardy could only produce receipts to the value of £34, and then he skipped town to Sydney, where Spencer had him arrested on a charge of false pretenses. The ages reporting of the case gives some idea of how motion pictures were then viewed as a cheap and even low form of entertainment, with all the following emphases, the work of the newspaper's use of inverted commas. Quote, The parties concerned had been showing at the Queen's Hall, Burke Street, said show being a mutoscope or biograph entertainment of greater or lesser merit. Cousins alleged that he commissioned Hardy to purchase a living pictures outfit from San Francisco. The resulting trial was a front page story in the Herald and the Argus on the 13th of February 1903. The jury's verdict... Richard Hardy was not guilty. Spencer's movie career in Australia had begun with an alleged business betrayal and bitter court case splashed across the newspapers. And that's also how it had ended some 15 years later. But the day after that not guilty verdict, Valentine's Day 1903, was a happy one with Spencer forging his most enduring personal and professional partnership when he married his senora, Mary Huntley. A bright, curious woman who was fascinated by electricity, Mary set about learning everything she could about projection equipment in order to become Spencer's partner, not just in marriage, but in the movies. For a far-sighted businessman, film exhibition could be more profitable than a gold rush. By the time Spencer and the Senora married, Australia was already well on the way to being one of the world's most prolific consumers and producers of motion pictures. From November 1894, Australia had an Edison kinetoscope parlour in Sydney. There, for a shilling, you could peer into the device's eyepiece and watch short novelty scenes. A man snorting snuff and then sneezing, 
a pretty lady doing a fan dance, a couple of men boxing, or even a couple of boxing cats. Less than two years later, in August 1896, visiting illusionist Carl Hertz took the flickers public on a big screen when he demonstrated the cinematograph at the Melbourne Opera House. It was billed as the sensation of the 19th century and the most startling scientific marvel of the age. The Weekly Times newspaper commented, quote, In principle, it is the kinetoscope of Mr Edison. In practice, it is a marvellous improvement upon it. Life-size figures and pictures, true to nature, are shown upon the canvas. A couple of scenes from a comical trilby called forth much laughter, and scenes of London streets and bridges with crowds of traffic Omnibuses moving rapidly, hansom cabs dashing along speedily, fairly brought down the English part of the house. Just a month later, in Sydney, Australia's own cinematic experiments began, thanks to Marius Sestier, a visiting representative of pioneering French filmmakers Auguste and Louis Lumiere. Likely with the assistance of Australian society photographer Henry Walter Barnett, Sestier made Australia's first films, Patineur Grotesque, which showed a roller-skating buffoon in Prince Alfred Park in Redfern, and Passengers Leaving SS Brighton, which captured people getting off a ferry at Manly. Other film experiments followed, but Sestier and Barnett's crowning achievement came on Tuesday the 3rd of November when they filmed the Melbourne Cup. By late November, sellout crowds at Sydney's Criterion Theatre were watching a selection of these films and, for the very first time, were able to see their own people and places on the silver screen. The Bulletin magazine noted how, quote, beautifully appropriate, that the first Australian picture presented by the new machine should be a horse race. Of course, it had to be either that or a football match. Australia's first large-scale film producer was The Salvation Army, which in August 1897 set up their limelight department in the attic of their outreach centre on Burke Street in Melbourne. The Salvo's cinematic operation was dedicated to producing short movies that would show their good works and maybe even save souls with stirring religious scenes. Their epic was Soldiers of the Cross, which went for two hours, comprising 13 short films, 200 glass slides, live dramatic and musical performances and rousing lectures. Soldiers of the Cross played to some 4,000 people at its Melbourne Town Hall premiere in September 1900. Then, as Australia's only corporate film producer, the Salvos won the tender to document Australia's Federation on the 1st of January 1901. The Limelight Department captured this historic occasion on 90-second reels of film, which when edited together, comprised a 30 to 35 minute movie called The Inauguration of the Australian Commonwealth. For the first time in history, the birth of a nation had been recorded on film. 
From around the turn of the century, one real movies, referred to variously as bioscope, biograph, mutoscope or cinematograph pictures, were imported from England, Europe and the United States. They were shown as part of variety show entertainments at venues such as Melbourne's Athenaeum Hall, run by the theatrical Tate family, and Queen's Hall, where newly arrived Spencer Cousins, Robert Huntley and Richard Hardy fell out over that alleged financial fraud. In early January 1903, Hardy, while out on bail and awaiting trial, was sole manager of Edison's marvellous Wonderscope at Queen's Hall, showing movies whose subjects included Lord Kitchener's arrival in England and the Battle of San Juan Hill in the Spanish-American War. His newspaper advertisements claimed it was Edison's latest and only perfect animated picture machine, showing pictures on a scale never before witnessed in Australia. Proving that success is the best revenge, by October 1903, Spencer Cousins, now calling himself Charles Cousins Spencer, bought Hardy out and took over the Wonderscope. Spencer and the Senora now had their own state-of-the-art picture show. They toured as far north as Rockhampton and as far south as Launceston, offering a, quote, magnificent repertoire of all the latest American and European subjects. Spencer's featured movie was Bluebeard, the 1901 production by George Méliès, the French film pioneer best known for A Trip to the Moon, with its iconic image of a rocket stuck in the moon's eye. Bluebeard comprised 10 scenes and was 1,400 feet in length, which back then was understood by audiences to indicate a film duration of about 19 minutes. Supporting shorter sequences included that Spanish bullfight, a plough removing 20 feet of snow in the Yukon Pass, and a reproduction of the previous year's volcanic eruption and earthquake in Martinique that had killed 30,000 people. The Spencer's two-hour program was unusual because it was dedicated solely to moving pictures. Here's how the Darling Downs Gazette touted Spencer's upcoming show in November 1903. Quote, On Thursday night, Toowoomba theatregoers will be afforded the opportunity for the first time of witnessing The Wonderscope, which is the latest advance in the series of wonderful inventions whereby the wide and varied beauties of the world may be reproduced anywhere for the pleasure of all who desire to look upon them. Mr. C. Spencer makes no secret of the fact that this is almost wholly a picture show, but he looks upon its excellence in this respect to far outweigh the attractiveness that might be imparted by vocal and instrumental items, and the verdict of the large audiences with which he has been favoured elsewhere is certainly confirmatory of this claim. No doubt the folks of Toowoomba were impressed, but what's also worth noting is that this newspaper report was repeated almost verbatim in other cities in coming months, meaning Spencer had already mastered the art of the press release.
While they toured far and wide, Spencer and the Senora wanted a more permanent base of operations, and that's what they sought to establish at Sydney's Lyceum Theatre. There, on Saturday night, the 1st of July, 1905, they premiered the first season of what they now called the Great American Theatrescope Company. General admission was two shillings for front seats, one shilling for stalls, sixpence for spots at the back, and kids were half price. Spencer enjoyed sellout sessions, and a week into the run, Sydney's The Sun newspaper reported, quote, the fine response on the part of the public at the opening night of the American Theatrescope Company at the Lyceum Theatre has been maintained. Last night, fine animated pictures from the world's cities were projected on the screen. The Wild West drama, depicting in admirable clearness a stirring time between cowboys and Indians, was an especially realistic presentation. Humour is a prominent feature, and some of the latest films in this department convulsed last night's big attendance. To keep his audiences coming, Spencer knew he had to keep his program fresh, and in this regard, The Sun continued. Quote, Mr C. Spencer, manager of the company, has received by the RMS China, just in, a large consignment of new films from his agents in London and Paris. These will be shown for the first time next Saturday night. While at the Lyceum, Spencer was able to change his program weekly, introducing new films while continuing to show proven crowd-pleasers. And before the month was out, he announced an even more ambitious undertaking. Spencer wasn't going to just import movies. He was going to make them, and make them in record time. On Saturday, the 22nd of July, thousands of Sydney-siders thrilled to an epic rowing showdown for the world's sculling championship between longtime rivals James Stanbury and George Towns. For the record, Stanbury won, but so did Spencer, who filmed the event, processed the footage and screened the champion crossing the finish line for his Lyceum audience just five hours after it happened. Spencer and the Signora kept the Lyceum engagement going for more than two months. During this time, one of his biggest attractions was Georges Méliès' spectacular hand-coloured A Trip to the Sun, which was the follow-up to his Moon movie. This early sci-fi shared a program with the ever-popular Cowboys v Indians and The Great Train Robbery. Given Spencer's decade on the Canadian frontier, where there were cowboys, Indians and robbers, it's easy to appreciate why he loved sharing these films. And given Australians' love of bushranger stories, it's also easy to understand why local audiences lapped up these pictures. In September 1905, another frontier beckoned, Western Australia with Spencer and the Senora loading up their two tonnes of equipment, which included 1,000 pounds worth of films, and sailing west. 
For the next three months, they showed pictures in Perth, Fremantle, Bunbury, and the goldfields of Kalgoorlie and Coolgardie. In smaller, more remote venues where there wasn't an electricity supply, the Signora hooked up the projector's lantern to the oil-run generator that they travelled with. Spencer and the Signora returned to Sydney at year's end for another season at the Lyceum before striking out again for South Australia and Western Australia. On the 18th of April 1906, they were in Perth when the terrible news came through. Much of San Francisco had been destroyed by an earthquake that had killed 3,000 people. Nine days later, Spencer, whose program included now sadly poignant scenic views of the city that now lay in ruins, gave a benefit show for sufferers of the disaster, raising £70 that was forwarded to the United States through consular channels. By the third week of June and back in Sydney, they were showing actual footage of the San Francisco disaster, which had been filmed by one of Spencer's brothers at a cost of £200 and sent to him aboard the steamship Sonoma. Here's how it was advertised in the Sydney Morning Herald. Quote, San Francisco earthquake reproducing in panoramic views the disastrous effects of its principal thoroughfare, theatres, public buildings and private residences. Flying humanity, privation, dynamiting death, etc. The only genuine series yet imported. At this time, Sydney's The Theatre magazine did the only lengthy interview with The Senora. She told them how hard it was to crank a movie projector for two hours, how much she enjoyed the good nature of the audiences, how much equipment they had to lug around when on tour, and how they were constantly getting rid of old films to make way for the new. Towards the end of the interview, her husband chimed in with the magazine reporting. Mr Spencer, in speaking of his wife's efforts in furthering the success of the entertainment, was most emphatic. A lady operator, he maintains, has the delicate touch necessary to make each operation a success, and she knows exactly how to apply the light and shade, the celerity or the slowest movement. Theatre magazine quoted Spencer as saying, In fact, the entire success of the entertainment is due to her efforts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As good as they were, by 1906, Spencer and the Senora had plenty of competition, both in the production and exhibition of films. 
In Melbourne, William Gibson and Millard Johnson, who'd had success showing a travelogue called Living London, had a hit with their one-reel documentary, Living Hawthorne, which showed everyday life in this Melbourne suburb. Next, they teamed with the Tate brothers to produce a film unlike anything seen before. The story of the Kelly Gang had its premiere at the Athenaeum Hall, Melbourne, on Boxing Day 1906, comprising five 1,000-foot reels, giving it a running time of about 60 minutes. This was the world's first feature film as we understand them today. That this long-form bushranger epic proved a commercial hit wasn't lost on anyone, least of all Spencer and the Senora. But they also looked elsewhere for inspiration and from mid-1907 spent more than seven months in America, England and Europe, observing the latest in film production and exhibition techniques and technology and signing new movie distribution deals. When Spencer and the Senora returned to Sydney early the following year, it was with a grand plan. The Lyceum was to be reborn, extensively renovated so that it could seat 3,000 people. The ground floor was lowered and ramped to give everyone a good view of the screen. New seating was installed throughout and the balconies were attractively decorated. Up until this time, movie showmen had rented premises short-term for their seasons, but now Spencer announced that he had taken over the Lyceum for five years. Australia had its very first dedicated movie theatre. Sydney newspaper The Newsletter reported, quote, Regarding the Lyceum for cinematograph displays, Mr Spencer says the securing of the place on a long lease has crowned all his efforts. No theatre hall or other institution in London or New York can compare, in his opinion, with the Lyceum. Spencer's new distribution deals, which guaranteed four shipments of films a month, meant, as the newsletter put it, quote, the Lyceum will be the ever-moving mirror of the old world and of America as far as their great daily occurring events are concerned. But the Lyceum complex was to be more than a movie theatre. It was also to be Spencer's factory for film production. The new Lyceum opened to the public on Saturday the 4th of April 1908 with a two-hour program comprising 17 films. While the biggest attractions were a movie about people being rescued from an eagle's nest and views of the American naval fleet that was soon to visit Australia, there were also Spencer-produced scenes of shipping at Sydney's Circular Quay and buck jumping at Melbourne's Albert Park. When Easter rolled around, Spencer changed the program to offer one of the greatest films produced to that time. Pathé's 3,300-foot, that is, 40-minute or so, hand-coloured epic, The Life and Death of Christ. Spencer also produced more homegrown movies, and he did it in a hurry. The newsletter reported, quote, 
The Sydney show, with its moving throng, was photographed in the morning and reproduced by the cinematograph at the Lyceum in the evening. Again, the Test cricket match was reproduced the evening of the first day of play. Yet, not all of Spencer's locally produced newsreels, for that is what these were, showed happy events. On Easter Monday, the 20th of April, 1908, at the railway junction at the Sunshine Railway Station in Melbourne's western suburbs, a city-bound train from Bendigo smashed into the back of a train from Ballarat. 44 people were killed and more than 400 others were injured. Five days later, Sydney audiences at the Lyceum were watching footage of the wreckage and the removal of casualties. Spencer's movie business was so successful that by the end of 1908, he'd expanded his operations. He leased the 4,000-seat Sydney Town Hall to show films on public holidays when the Lyceum couldn't keep up with demand, and he set up another permanent picture show at the Sydney Skating Rink. And it wouldn't be long before he took over the 5,000-seat Worth's Olympia Theatre in Melbourne. As sole importer of many big international productions, Spencer also opened a special department for the sale and hire of films to other showmen across Australia and New Zealand. To guarantee his audiences and exhibitors the very best quality images, Spencer followed a policy described by the newsletter newspaper this way, quote, No old or worn films will be used, but cremated, so that the art of animated photography will never wane, and none will be hired or sold that will be detrimental to his clients. Thanks to this practice, followed by Spencer and other producers and showmen, along with the passage of more than a century and the fragility of early film negatives and prints, it's estimated that between 75 and 90% of movies made in the silent era are forever lost. So we'll never see the film Spencer took of the June 1908 rugby union game between a visiting all Maori side and the New South Wales team in front of 30,000 people at the Sydney Agricultural Grounds. Or the following month's tram strike, which saw Sydney brought to a standstill by thousands of protesters and mounted police called to escort steam trams through the city streets. Nor, sadly, can we experience the very first sound pictures, which Spencer introduced to Sydney in August 1908, more than 20 years before Al Jolson's The Jazz Singer arrived in Australia. At the cost of nearly £1,000, that's $150,000 in today's money, he imported a chrono megaphone machine, one of 50 ever produced by their French inventor, the film pioneer Leon Gourmont. Weighing 450 kilograms, the chrono megaphone was a mechanical system to sync projector and gramophone to show films and amplify voice and music by a compressed air mechanism so that the sounds were loud enough to fill large theatres. As ever, the clever Senora Spencer deftly manipulated this new contraption. 
Spencer's headline chrono-megaphone movies starred Scottish comedian and singer Harry Lauder, then among the world's most famous performers, known for hits such as Stop Your Ticklin' Jock and I Love a Lassie. The Sydney Morning Herald attended the press preview and reported of the machine. Quote, Its object is to add speech to the living pictures by means of a magnified phonograph in touch with the actions of the person reproduced in the tableau. Harry Lauder, the Scottish comedian and music hall singer who has been so much in the public eye in London and New York, was shown in Highland dress and his song was then reproduced by the electric attachment. The movements of the mouth synchronised perfectly with the sound from the machine. The Sydney Sportsman newspaper chimed in, quote, The Spencers ought to coin a lot of money through their plucky enterprise in introducing the chrono-megaphone. It is certainly the most up-to-date thing yet shown in Australia in the matter of moving pictures. The article continued, Through the chrono-megaphone, one gets a most vivid, realistic idea of Lauder's work, his inimitable gestures and intensely funny singing. Between the Lauder in reality and the Lauder as now being seen and heard at the Lyceum, there must be a very microscopical difference indeed. The sportsman's report concluded by saying the Spencers, quote, were simply overwhelmed with congratulations on the unbounded success of the function, with tributes of admiration at their go-aheadedness in being the first to give Australians such a machine. As testament to its popularity, the chrono megaphone would still be serving Spencer five years later, having thrilled audiences in all major cities and toured many country towns. Spencer's other 1908 productions, such as The American Fleet Arriving in Sydney Harbour, The Swearing-In of the New Governor-General, A Boy Scout Jamboree at La Perouse, are all sadly lost. But his crowning triumph of documentary filmmaking? Well, a substantial amount of this classic can still be seen, and it's a film that genuinely changed the world. In Sydney in late 1908, promoter Hugh D. McIntosh, known as HD and even more popularly as Huge Deal on account of his entrepreneurial spirit, pulled off a coup when he put up a record amount of prize money so that the World Heavyweight Championship would be fought at the Sydney Stadium that he'd built earlier that year at Rushcutters Bay. What was truly sensational was that the reigning champ, white Canadian Tommy Burns would face off against African-American contender Jack Johnson. This was the first time that a black man had challenged 
for the world heavyweight title. For the past two years, Johnson had followed Burns around the world, sitting ringside and taunting him for a tilt at the title. Now, it was on. Burns wanted £6,000, win, lose or draw, and Huge Deal was only too happy to put up the money, with Johnson to get just £1,500 if he should happen to win, which was considered extremely unlikely by bookmakers. Fittingly, this historic showdown was to be staged on Boxing Day. Huge Deal was guaranteed to sell out his stadium, which could hold 20,000 people. But this canny promoter knew that a movie might reach an audience 100 times that size. Ever since Edison's first productions, boxing pictures had made money, and this promised to be a fight film like no other. And Spencer was just the man to make it. It's unknown whether Spencer had a financial stake in the production. One later magazine report claimed that he did, and that after a falling out with Huge Deal, he took what was owed to him out of Australian box office receipts. What's more likely is that Spencer got a fee, and perhaps a percentage of the local box office, for it's on record that Huge Deal controlled distribution in Australia and overseas. As director and producer, Spencer was in charge of organising the shoot, arranging as many as four cameras, operating one himself alongside another under the control of pioneering cinematographer Ernest Higgins. Filming began a full month before the fight. Spencer's cameras captured both fighters in training, skipping, swimming, shadowboxing, and even chasing rabbits and kangaroos, with these scenes screened publicly to help build anticipation. Boxing Day dawned bright but cloudy, which, with strong even light, was perfect for filming. With Huge Deal in the ring as referee and cameras being cranked on tented platforms rising from the crowd, Burns and Johnson entered the ring at 10.40am. Burns reluctantly shook hands with Johnson and then the champ proceeded to take a protracted beating. From the first round, the outcome was never in doubt. Johnson, who towered over Burns, toyed with him smashing him at will, locking him up, letting him land a few blows now and then, taunting him with gold-toothed grins and joking with the crowd as if he didn't have a care in the world, which he didn't. Spencer's cameras caught it all. After 14 rounds, police intervened to stop the fight and Jack Johnson was declared the winner. Johnson gave credit to Burns, saying... Quote, he fought much gamer than I expected, but never seriously troubled me at any time. I wanted to show Tommy Burns and all you people looking on that the yellow streak was not in me. I waited a long time for the chance. This unprecedented victory, long before Jackie Robinson, Joe Lewis and Muhammad Ali, in the words of documentarian Ken Burns, made Jack Johnson, quote, the most famous 
and most notorious African-American on Earth. Of course, he was also the target of racial hatred. Incredibly bad sport Tommy Burns set the tone, telling newspapers that he'd only been defeated because he'd been underweight, because Johnson had landed a lucky first round blow, and because he'd hurt his ankle early in the fight. He even went so far as to say he might have won, except for the cops. Quote, he can't hit worth a cent. I was there till the police interfered and would have been through the other six rounds and might have won because the big N-word was tiring fast. But whatever this racist weasel claimed, Spencer's cameras had caught what really happened on film for the whole world to see, and much of the world did see it. A partially completed version of his movie was screened on the night of the 28th of December at the Sydney Stadium for a crowd of seven to 8,000 people. Two nights later, the movie was complete with a running time of 80 minutes and screened at the Town Hall for an audience of 4,000. In the coming weeks, the film showed across Australia and was then taken to London. By March 1909, 18 prints were in circulation in the United States, with the Los Angeles Herald on the 24th of April giving Spencer's movie the sort of coverage any Australian producer would kill for today. The headline read, Extra Performance for Burns Johnson Pictures. The article explained, quote, Owing to the enormous crowds that have witnessed the exhibition of the Burns-Johnson fight pictures now at the People's Theatre, arrangements have been made for extra performances. It went on. These pictures have been highly praised by all those attending and the press have been unanimous in stating they are the best pictures yet exhibited of any fight. There was by now added interest in seeing how Johnson handled himself in the ring. That's because former American world heavyweight champion James Jeffries had challenged him to the fight of the century. Jeffries said he was going to restore the white man to his rightful supremacy. And in one of the most racist episodes in American sporting history, newspapers dubbed him the Great White Hope. For the record, Jack Johnson beat him. Back in Sydney, Spencer continued to show Australia to Australians. His camera filmed naval cadets training at Rushcutters Bay and the New South Wales Agricultural Show. When the annual university procession through Sydney was held on a Saturday morning in May, Spencer filmed it and showed footage at the matinee session a few hours later, which the Daily Telegraph reported was, quote, a record equal to, if not better than, any similar effort made in the world. One month later, Spencer's operators went to Mount Kosciuszko. No mean feat when country roads were rudimentary and cars and trucks were uncommon. Of the resulting footage, the Daily Telegraph reported, quote, The spectator is taken from the hotel at Kuma along the road which winds across the Monaro Plains, on to Jindabyne, where the Snowy River is crossed, and finally up to the hospice at Diggers Creek. Lake Percy, the toboggan slide, the creek, and its splendid snow-fed waterfalls are shown at their best, 
And the long film includes also many pictures of skiing and tobogganing, which make those who have been there long for more, and those who have not crave for the novel and invigorating experience. To add to the spectacle, Spencer's Kosciuszko film was hand-coloured. Sadly, like so much of his work, it's lost. But Spencer's other major sporting film survives nearly in its entirety. On Saturday, the 2nd of October, 1909, his cameras captured the VFL Grand Final between Carlton and South Melbourne at the MCG in front of 37,000 fans. Carlton had won the last three Grand Finals, while South Melbourne had never won a Premiership. In an absolute nail-biter, the underdogs triumphed, South Melbourne scoring 4-14-38 to Carlton's 4-12-36. Spencer's film is the oldest surviving footage we have of Australian rules football. In April 1910, having seen the money William Gibson and Millard Johnson had made from their documentary Living Hawthorne, and in order to compete with his major rival, showman T.J. West, who'd acquired the Pathé film series The Real Australia, Spencer released his multi-part series, Picturesque Sydney. These films showed the city's fine parks, stately mansions, imposing public buildings, and the grandeur of its beaches and harbour. They were pretty to look at, but according to the Daily Telegraph, something of a chore to listen to. Quote, The effect of some of the pictures was spoiled by the absurd hammering going on behind the scenes in the way of effects. Picturesque Sydney is lost, but Spencer's companion film, Marvellous Melbourne, Queen City of the South, which premiered at his worst Olympia on the 22nd of November 1910, is the oldest surviving documentary we have about the city. Advertisements proclaimed, quote, It gives a panorama of Melbourne, the principal streets and buildings, shipping in the Yarra, Henley on the Yarra, botanical gardens, scenes among onlookers at a football match, railway station, Flemington Racecourse. But Spencer's Worth's Theatre was an attraction in itself, promoted as, quote, the warehouse of the world's wonders, and, quote, rendered delightfully cool in summer by the recent structural improvements and summer parallel sliding roofs. Yet that was positively modest with how the Lyceum and its showmen were advertised in Sydney. Quote, the largest cinematograph enterprise in Australasia, the Department of the World's Wonders, the most perfect picture house in the world, deliciously cool, aided by patent fans that cause a zephyr-like breeze to pervade the building without any drafts, simply cools the air and renders the hall a perfect paradise, sitting in luxuriance for enjoying Spencer's brilliant pictures at one's ease and comfort. There is no building to equal or surpass the Lyceum, where Spencer reigns king of all. The movies were booming across the country. In Sydney alone, there were now 50 permanent picture shows. The Lyceum was selling 20,000 tickets across its eight shows a week. But while Spencer was successful with his scenic pictures, 
they weren't even his main focus anymore because he'd started making feature films. Yet Spencer, king of all, was heading for a fall. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. The second and final part of this episode will be released next week. So make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it comes out. In the meantime, you can see some of Spencer's films at ForgottenAustralia.com and you can show your support for this podcast by leaving a review and rating at iTunes. If you'd like another tale of early Australian cinematic history, get my book, Australia's Sweetheart, which tells the story of our forgotten Hollywood star, Mary Maguire. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.